So um, for those of you who are just joining us, or maybe you haven't uh, been here for a little bit, we've started a series in Lent, uh, Lent, which is the season leading up to Easter, leading up to um, you know, our celebration of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lent starts, just to remind you guys, Lent starts 40 days prior to Easter minus Sunday uh, on Ash Wednesday, which was this past Wednesday. Um, and this typically is a time of kind of reflection and fasting and meditation and deepening in our own intimacy with Christ. I've heard a little bit for some of you guys, some of the things that you're doing and the things that you kind of are trying to do throughout Lent. Um, and I'm really encouraged, to be honest. I just, just want to say, like, I know a lot of you guys have been more in the Word and been focusing more kind of on your disciplines. And that's, it's been really encouraging to hear that. You know, what we're actually going to talk about today is uh, really dryness, spiritual dryness. Uh, And one of the reasons we're talking about it now in this series and in this season is because when we strip away other things, and you know, the past couple weeks we've been talking about fasting, you know, last week we talked about stillness, and that there's so much noise in our lives, that there's so much stuff coming at us all the time. And so many things that demand our attention, whether those are really important things like work and family or very trivial things like, you know, little games or like, you know, often social media, just things that tend to be distractions in our lives. When we start to strip some of those things down and we think about the deeper things of our heart, uh, we may experience, we may realize that often our our spiritual well has been pretty dry. You know, when we're very distracted, sometimes we don't really notice those things. When we strip away the distractions, we realize oftentimes that, you know, if we were unaware of this condition before, as we step into reflection, as we step, particularly if you step into something like fasting, right? If you're fasting something that's a regular part of your life, like food, whatever's in your heart tends to come out. It just leaks out. And you may have had mechanisms to keep those things from coming out before. And when you strip some of those things away, um, it becomes very difficult. Now, just even before we get into it, I want to talk about... uh, Four, I guess four different groups of people that I'm thinking of as we step into this, as we step into this text and this topic. Um, so I'll talk about these and so we can know why, it's, why it might be relevant to us. Um, one, you may be experiencing, so these are the four kind of groups of people I'm thinking of. One, you may be experiencing dryness right now, spiritual dryness. So you may be trying to develop your intimacy and relationship with God, but it's not it seems like it's not kind of happening correctly or something is difficult in that process. Um, So you're experiencing dryness right now and you know it. Uh, Second group of people I'm thinking about is you may be experiencing a season of dryness, but you don't realize that that's what it is yet. So you're actually going through a season of dryness, but you don't really know that that's what it is that is making it so difficult for you to connect with God. Um, Third group I'm thinking of is you may not be going through a season of dryness, but you may know someone 
who is going through a season of dryness and is in fact thinking about walking away from the church or the faith because of it. And, and this is something that actually happens often when we encounter a season of dryness. We may not really know how to deal with it. And some people misinterpret that as kind of abandonment from God. And then they're thinking about walking away from the faith. Um, the last kind of group I'm thinking of is maybe you were dry at some point in the past. So you went through a season of dryness at some point in the past for whatever reason— and we'll talk about some of those reasons a little bit later. But it persisted so long that you no longer know where you stand before God. So you went through a season of dryness. You weren't really sure what it was, but it kind of messed up your relationship with God for so long that now you're kind of confused about your own faith. Like you don't know where you stand before God anymore. So it's incredibly, I think this is an incredibly relevant topic for us. Um, wherever we're at, whatever season we're experiencing right now, and it's very important, particularly if you're not in a season of dryness, it's important that we know what it is, how to identify it, and how to go through it before it happens. And it may be something that we even go through in this season of Lent, and so I thought it would be very good for us to talk about it today. Um, so what we'll talk about, just to kind of lay it out, one, what is it? What is the condition of spiritual dryness? What are the causes? What are some of the causal factors? And then what are the cures? That's what we'll talk about as we're walking through our text today. And so if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to Psalm chapter 42. I'm sorry, Psalm 42. There's not really chapters. They're just Psalms. <laughs> Psalm 42. And uh, we're going to read actually Psalm 42 and 43. Because this is really one uh, one unit, if you look at it in, uh, in Scripture. So Psalm 42 and 43, we'll read through the whole thing first, and then we'll talk about, again, you know, you know what is this condition um, of spiritual dryness, and what are the causes, and what are the cures? So this is uh, Psalm 42. This is the Word of God, and it says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and be appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. Let's read on. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. 
and this is 43, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So what is the condition of spiritual dryness? Now, very quickly, it's laid out just in the first two verses. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you. This is a thing, okay? And it's laid out in a metaphor, and then it's laid out in verse 2 in the explanation. Deer, you know, aren't stupid, right? So they don't wait until the last minute to go and find water. They know that they're going to be thirsty. They know that they're going to need to find water, and they know where to go to find water. They go to the river or they go to the stream. And so a deer that's panting means a deer that has come to the riverbed or the stream to find water but finds no water there. Right? My, my soul thirsts for God, but where is he? The psalmist is saying that he thirsts for God, the presence of God, but doesn't find the presence of God where he would normally look for the presence of God. So spiritual dryness, then, is the sense that we are no longer relationally connected to God. It's the sense that God is not there. We come again to the place where we've come before. We come again to the Word. We come again to prayer. We come again to worship. We come to where we've come before to find water, but we don't find water there. So the psalmist is... The motions are there, but the presence of God is not there. He's experiencing dryness and drought and darkness and deadness. So to be clear, what he's talking about, because sometimes in the Psalms, this, this kind of thing will be talked about, but the reason that there's this dryness is not this. It's because of sin. It's because of guilt. And so the psalmist will confess his guilt. He'll say, oh, you know, I have sinned against the Lord. There's something I've done wrong. I've turned away. Kind of this, this idea that I have not sought God or I have, I have participated in some kind of unjust thing. And so, of course, that, actually, that will result in dryness and deadness. If there is some kind of unconfessed habitual sin in our lives, if we're not in the Word, if we're not in prayer, if we're not participating in worship, if these things are not a regular part of our lives, then, of course, like we will certainly experience a dryness. But that's not what's being talked about here. In this passage, the point here is dryness can happen sometimes even when you do all those things. Even where you go to where the river was before, even when you go to the stream where you thought you were going to find the presence of God, there can be a circumstance. In fact, there will almost certainly be circumstances in our lives, seasons that we go through when we'll come to the same riverbed but find no water. And that's the, that's the spiritual dryness that's being talked about here. Like the other thing, I wouldn't really call it a season of dryness. Right? When, you know, when somebody's, you know, if they say, oh, I'm, I'm going through a season of dryness, and I'm like, are you in the Word? And they say, no. 
then I'd say, you're not in a season of dryness, right? Like, you're just not in the work. Like, you're just not going to the water. It's not that there's a drought. It's like, there's plenty of water over there. You just haven't gone to it. That's why you're thirsty. Go to the water, right? Like, that's a, that's a simple, that can be a simple solution sometimes. It's like, yeah, I haven't prayed or read the word or gone to church in, like, months. It's like, well, okay. I mean, that's just, you're going to be thirsty then for sure. Okay, that, but that's you denying yourself the presence of God. That's different than where you're doing those things and you're really sincerely seeking God, but you're not finding him. So that's, you know, that's the condition that we are talking about today. What do you do? You know, what, how does that happen that you can kind of seek God out and, and persist in these things and yet not find God? So I think the, the psalmist lays out um, kind of a few, a few factors, right? One is disruption of community, disruption of community. And the psalmist talks about, in fact, you know, verse 4, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So he's referring back to kind of the feasts and the festivals. You know, the Jewish people, they would all get together in community. If you think about, you know, for example, the Passover, they would read the passages from Exodus. They would talk about the Passover and how God had delivered them. They would all celebrate together. They would sing songs of praise. They would join in the feast. Like, they would do all these things together, and that would be a part of their lives. And he's remembering, and he's thinking, I remember back then that was part of my life, but for some reason now that's not part of my life. So we as, um, probably, it's probably cultural to some degree. Uh, Americans, it's probably generational to some degree. Millennials, you know, we love the, we love community, the word community, but what we associate with the word community is typically just like hanging out. Right, or being friends. And what the Bible emphasizes is the importance of communal spiritual discipline. Right? Like there's a difference between praying on your own and, and praying in the community, praying corporately. Personal prayer and corporate prayer. Both things are important. Sometimes we sacrifice one for the other for some weird reason, which was like we do all the corporate stuff, we don't do the personal stuff, or we do all the personal stuff, and then we don't do the corporate stuff. Both are really important. Personal prayer is important. Corporate prayer is important. Personal worship is important. Corporate worship is important. Personal reading of Scripture is important. Studying the Word of God in corporately also important. Right, we live in a pretty individualistic society. In fact, you know, there were, uh, I think 80 to 90% of Americans believe I can be a spiritual person without, and this is just across the board, so not just Christians, right? I can be a spiritual person without going to mosque, synagogue, church, right? I can just be the one who determines the level of my own spirituality on my own. I don't really need those things. Even though that idea is antithetical not only to Christianity, but to Judaism, you know, but to Islam, like they all would stress the importance of community, how it's so important that you stay accountable essentially to a group of people besides yourself. Because really, you can't keep yourself accountable. You'll never know what you're doing wrong on your own just by yourself. You will never stir up your own heart to passion just by yourself. 
And I've had tons of conversations about usually when people fall out of, you know, faith, their faith, it starts with they fall out of church. Right? So they don't go to church for a little bit. And then after a while, it just turns into like, I don't really know if God's there. I don't really know if he's real anymore. And that just kind of fades away. And so um, disruption of community, that's one of the causal factors. Secondly, um, disappointment. Disappointment at the events of life. Right? And he talks about, um, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me continually, where is your God? So they're kind of, there are people around the psalmist that are mocking him. You know, where is your God? Like, what's, what's happening? Right? His enemies, it seems like his enemies are succeeding And he is saying, right, verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? There's this this disappointment. There's this disillusion that happens at the events of life. And I think many of us can relate to this. When things in our lives don't go the way that we expect them to go, that tends to be a time where dryness can kind of set into our lives. Uh, Thirdly, third causal factor is, in fact, depression. Depression. Depression, going back here, when he says, my tears have been my food day and night. You guys know what that means? My tears have been my food day and night. It means, well, one, he's sad, right, (laughs) obviously, because he's crying. It says, my tears have been my food, meaning he's not eating, and day and night, meaning he's not sleeping. So his whole life, right, is just sorrow. Sorrow has so consumed him that he's thinking the, the anxieties of his life and the pain of his life is so great that he doesn't eat and he doesn't sleep. It's just kind of this total breakdown. Now, before we move into the cures, speaking specifically about, dep- so we've talked about disruption of community, disappointment at the events of life, and then depression, kind of a physical and emotional and um, breakdown so there there are a few types of people um that talk about how to deal with this right so there is a kind of physical people and then there is a moral people and there's a psychological emotional people and what what people will say like if you think more in physical terms the solution you might think is just sleep more you know eat more go on vacation right like like exercise these are the kinds of things that are prescribed for this kind of depression or this kind of dryness. Like, oh, here's the solutions. Go on a vacation, you know, just go have fun or get away from your rest. You know, you need to sleep, you need a day off. There's another kind of person who reduces it down to moral things. So basically, like, stop crying, get over it, (laughs) right? Like, just buck up, you know, pick yourself up. There are people in the world who have worse situations. There are other, you know, there's people out there who are going through worse things. Like, just suck it up. And then there's a a third type of person who reduces everything to a psychological or emotional thing. And what they'll say is, we're going to listen to you as long as we need to listen to you. And we're going to accept you and we're going to support you. And that's the solution. Now, Christians should be, of all people, the least reductionistic people. We should never reduce things down to just one thing. 
and say, okay, here's the solution. Just do this. You just need to get out. You just need more exercise. Even you just need to read the Bible or you just need to pray, you know, or we just need to listen to you. None of those things in and of themselves will really be a solution. So what are the cures that are presented? And I'll, I'll tell them to you first. Um, four things, okay? Struggle with God. Two, examine your hopes. Three, remember the grace of God. And four, preach to your heart. Okay, first thing, struggle with God. You know, the Christian life is often compared to a race. Right? You know, Paul uses that kind of notion. Right? He talks about it's a race. Are you running well? I didn't want to run in vain. I don't want to be disqualified from the race. It's referenced in Hebrews, right? Therefore, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But the race that is in mind in Scripture is not a sprint. It's a marathon. That's the idea of what the race is, right? And this is kind of what, um, this is a, this is a, so it's interesting because this is what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, right? He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. So it seems like what he's saying is run to win, right? So the goal is to re- win the race. But then in Timothy, this is the end of Paul's life. This is the last thing he wrote before he died. And he knows that that's going to happen, actually, because Paul is so kind of in tune with the Spirit. And he says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, what's interesting is he doesn't say, I have won the race. He says, as long as you're alive, run in such a way as to win the race. So, like, yeah, you should run as if you're competing in a race. But ultimately, the goal of the race is to finish it, not to win it. How do you finish a marathon? It's simple, right? Just don't stop running. In fact, you don't even have to run the whole thing, right? Just don't stop, period. You could walk. You can crawl. Like, whatever is going to get you across the finish line. And he says, that's the goal. Just finish it. So when I say struggle with God, that's what I mean. Okay, sometimes we use the word struggle when we're essentially, like, failing, right? When we're not, like, if you haven't read the Bible in, like, six months or something, and then you say, oh, man, reading the Bible is a struggle, what you really mean is I'm not reading the Bible at all, right? Which is fine. I mean, if that's what you're going through, I'm not saying it's, it's you know, bad per se to be in that situation, but I think it's important that we just say what our situation is. Right, like if you're if you're addicted to something, like if you're if you're addicted to some kind of substance, or you're addicted to like pornography, and you're just continuously doing it, and then you say, "Well, I'm I'm struggling with it." Well, you're not actually struggling with it. You're just in it. You're just in whatever sin. I'm struggling to forgive. I'm struggling to accept. Well, there has to be something actually happening there for it to be a struggle. If you're just giving into it, then that's not really a struggle. We need to struggle, meaning we need to persist 
in our faith. So that means in the context of dryness, right? If you get nothing out of worship and prayer and Bible reading, don't stop doing it. That, that's what it means. Right? Struggling isn't quitting. Quitting is ceasing to run the race. Struggling is persisting even when it doesn't net you the results that you want in the moment. That's struggling. Like struggling in community is continuing to be a part of the community and invest in the community even when the community doesn't look the way that you want it to look. Even when you are not receiving the things back that you want to receive. Now the good thing about this is, I'm, so there's something called runner's high, right? Um, and if you're a runner, you know what that is. Uh, I'm not a runner, <laughs> but I have experienced this and essentially what it is is uh, it's basically like endorphins that are released in your brain because, um, you know, and endorphins are, are related to – endorphins are very interesting. And I, I, some, in some ways, I want to just think about this, and I could probably just talk about this for, like, for a long time, but you guys would get super bored. But the, the nature of endorphins themselves is very fascinating to me because they, they accompany, like, pleasurable activities like eating good food or, like, listening to music or laughing or, like, sex. You know, like, these are things that – make endorphins happen in our brain, but then also it accompanies, like, painful activities. So it's actually associated with, like, labor or, like, uh, you know, aerobic or anaerobic kind of things that are happening in our body. So when you work out and you're getting to that point where you're very, like, your body is, you're putting a lot of stress on your body, your body will release endorphins for you to be able to get through it. So runner's high is when you're running for so long and you have to run for a long time. Now, look, I'm, you guys know I hate running, right? If you know me, you know I hate running. But there was a time in my life when I used to run a lot, you know, back in the days when I was actually kind of in shape. And I would run a lot. And, you know, you get to – what happens is that after you run for a long time, like several miles usually, you get to a point where your body is releasing all these endorphins and you actually feel like – it's kind of like a euphoric state. Like you actually become very – almost like happy. It's a weird sensation. The thing about struggling, right, is like a lot of times it's through the struggle that we actually discover a deeper intimacy, right? When you persist through it, you have to persist through it, right? You know, one of the uh, – I don't have a lot of athletic achievements in my life, right? But one that, that I'm actually proud of has nothing to do with like accomplishing something in terms of winning something but it's actually before i got married okay <laughs> i lost like I, I forgot exactly how much it was like 15 to 20 pounds in like a few months and i actually i had a torn acl <laughs> at the time but i just ran anyway because i was like i have to do this you know this is just something that must happen i got fitted for my uh tux right for my wedding and it was like gross i was, <laughs> it was like big and i didn't like it and i was like i have to lose weight so you know I, I just started running, and there's something about it, like, that you have to struggle, right? Where you have to actually, it's, like, it's hard, and you go through it, but at the same time, you discover something deeper in it, right? And this, this, this is true spiritually, and I know many of us, we know that, I think, physically, because we've gone through certain things physically, 
But the same is true spiritually, where there is something powerful that happens when we persist in struggle. So I would say persist in that personal spiritual discipline and persist in corporate spiritual discipline. Secondly, examine your hopes. Examine your hopes. Now, what we see in the psalmist and what the psalmist writes. Now, obviously, you know, we know that he's struggling because this is what's happening. He's writing this. He's writing about his struggle. And I would say if, if, the, if you, you know, sometimes it's hard to pray, right? Like, I don't know what to pray to God. Then, then pray that to God. God, I don't know what to pray. I don't feel God's presence. Then pray that to God. God, I don't feel your presence. Where are you? I'm struggling. You know, I don't know where you are. Now, what he does after that is he, he examines his hopes. Right? When he says, and he says this repeatedly, right? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then he says, you know, hope in God, right? He's actually asking himself that question. He's saying, what's going on? Like, why did I get so downcast? What, what happened? Why is it so hard for me to connect with God? What, what has come about? Now, even though this spiritual dryness is not the result of some kind of persistent sin in his life, often these are the times when God reveals to us our false hopes. Right? You start looking at your life and you think, oh, like, but why... Why did I get here? What happened to get me here? What was my hope in? What was I so anticipating that now I'm disappointed about that it hasn't happened? Spiritual dryness is a perfect time to examine ourselves, examine our hopes. Now, thirdly, which is connected, right? He recalls the loving kindness of God. He directs his hope towards God. And he remembers, he says, oh, okay, what, what were the things that God did, right? And as he remembers things, that's what he remembers, right? Verse 8, when he says, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and as, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And many commentators note that when he talks about this steadfast love, and it's, you know, the word said, which refers to this unmerited grace and unconditional love of God, you know, many commentators know what he's thinking about is the history of his people and his own personal life with God. That's what he's recalling. He's bringing to mind. The experience of God's loving kindness is amazing. And it's often in the remembering. That's what God, that's how God brings it to us. Right? You know, um, one of the things that, like, Boomi and I like doing particularly on, like, uh, our birthdays or anniversaries or something, when we have a chance to just, like, have dinner together, is we'll just talk about, like, the, the like, moments in our marriage, like, things that have happened in the past. And it's funny because you would think, like, oh, yeah, you know, we'll talk about, like, our, you know, like, vacations or something, or, like, honeymoons or, you know, whatever, like, that kind of stuff, right? But actually, that's usually not what comes up when we talk about, like, hey, what's the, what do you remember? Like, what sticks out to you? Usually what it is, it's like, it's like fights that we had. 
Like one thing that we remember all the time is like when we, uh, early in our marriage, when we first got married, um, when we got married, we didn't have anything. That's just, I don't know. I think it was, we were like on the borderline between Gen X and millennials. I think it was the Gen Xer in us that was just like, let's just get married. Who cares? We don't have anything. We don't have money. You know, Boomi didn't even have a job. Um, I was, <laughs> I was a pastor, but I was being paid very little. And um, basically, we moved into our apartment. We didn't have anything. We had no furniture. We had no couch. We had no bed. We had no, you know, dining table. We didn't have a fridge. We had, z- we literally had nothing. And so slowly, you know, we were like getting that stuff. You know, we just slept on the floor. We after we got married, we got a TV that somebody gave to us. And so, like, we would – that was it. We had a desk that I brought and a dresser, and that was that was all we owned, right? And so it was kind of stressful, you know, at the beginning. We were like, oh, we have to get this stuff. And I would put, you know, pressure on her because she's, she's kind of particular about the stuff she wants. I would just be like, who cares? Just buy the whatever cheapest thing. And she'd be like, no, like, she doesn't want to pay a lot, but she wanted these specific things. And so she'd be, like, looking on Craigslist every day. So she finds this thing, right? Like, this, uh, she finds this, I don't even remember what the, I think it was a TV stand, because I was like, oh, we need a TV stand. So she found this TV stand on Craigslist. It's, like, in Pasadena. I didn't even want to go. We get into this fight. And then actually we had to borrow Heather's car. So we, we went to wherever Heather's car was. We borrowed her car. We're like, hey, Heather, what's up? Yeah, you know, we're like acting like everything's cool. We get in the car. We drive to Pasadena. It's like silent the whole time. Like nothing, right? Our phones are not connected to the car. So we can't even listen to music. We're trying to listen to the radio, but the stations change and stuff. And it's just like static and Heather's radio sucked. And like, you know, all this, it's just like, it's just like a mess, right? And we go there, and we're, I'm, we're, like, in the worst mood. We go to this guy who has this, you know, and he shows us the TV stand. And then we're like, okay, yeah, whatever, we'll take it. But he also had, like, a dining table and, like, you know, chairs and stuff that we kind of wanted. And Boomi looked at it, and she was like, oh, yeah, you know, there's, these, there's this dining table. And these she's like, how much for that stuff? And we got, like, a really good deal on it, right? And we get back in the car, and we load it up. And then we're driving back, and then we're in this weird situation, right, where it's like you're happy, but then you're still mad at each other. Do you know what I'm talking about? And it's like weird, right? So we're like, ah, oh, like, it's like if you got, you know, it's like if you just got in a fight with your best friend, and then you found like a $100 bill on the ground, and, you know, you each got one or something, and now you don't know what to say. Like, you don't know how to react because you're obviously happy, but you're still, like, mad at the other person. And then we ended up, obviously, you know, we just, we like, you know, confessed to each other. You know, we forgave each other. And then we were just, we kind of found ourselves in this new situation where we were very happy. And it's like, it's funny because it's like a dumb thing like that that we remember that we will share, that we'll talk about. Because that's what will happen when you think about, when you try to remember your relationship with God. It's not going to be some like retreat. You're not going to remember some retreat. Like, honestly, that's not the things that you remember. You're not going to remember some, like, even, even some missional experience where you're out there and you felt, like, really close. That's not usually what comes to What comes to mind, what God brings to mind is, like, these bad moments in your life. Like, when you felt really broken. When you felt like you messed up. 
right? Like, like, like when it was like to you, you were like, oh, I'm so confused or I'm so lost or I don't know what's going on. And God was there for you in that moment. And God pulled you out of it. Like often when I think about my own relationship with God, what I think about are these moments where, yeah, I turned to God, but not because I was being really spiritual or I was doing a good job. It was because I was desperate. Like, God, I've tried all these other things, and they've all failed. And I tried to trust in myself, and I just failed. And all I have left is you. And he reminds you of how he turns that into like just an experience of his grace into joy into when you're in a fight with God and you reconcile there's something that happens in that like when you feel distant with someone and that moment when it turns like when you're in a fight with somebody and that moment when you reconcile and it's like when you're mad at that person, do you know what you think about? You think about like all the ways in which they've hurt you, right? And you're like, oh, they're, they're so shady or they're so like evil, like all these ways. They're so selfish. Like those are the things you think about, right? Like, ah, oh, they did this and this and this. They always do this. They never do this. They never do what I ask them. They always do these things to hurt me. And that's what you're thinking about, right? Because you're angry at them. And then something happens when you reconcile where the, it all turns the other way. And then what you remember is actually all the ways that they've loved you, that they were, like, faithful to you, that they cared for you. You remember all, all of a sudden you remember, like, oh, yeah, but then they gave me all these gifts, right? And they did all these things and they made all these sacrifices. That's what happens when we recall the loving kindness of God because we feel like, oh, he's abandoned me. Like, he's, he's not here for me. Where are you, God? You've forsaken me. And then you remember he's always been there. Now, here's the last thing, okay? So struggle with God. Examine your hopes. Remember, bring to mind God's grace, God's loving kindness. Here's a fourth thing. It's very important. Okay, preach to your heart. Preach to your heart. Now, what is, that's what this whole psalm is. Right? When he says... Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Who is he talking to, right? He's not talking to God. He's not talking to the reader, us. He's talking to himself. That's who he's talking to. He's saying, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. Now, here's why this is really important, okay? Sometimes we accept this notion that we can't do anything about our lives. Things just are the way that they are, right? The situation just is the way that it is. I just feel the way that I feel, and there's nothing that I can do about it. There's nothing that I can change about it. Now, it takes a lot of listening, it takes a lot of struggling. It takes a lot of that, right? It's not just, hey, get out of it. 
But at some point when we do struggle and we express that to God, at some point when we do examine our hopes, at some point when we do remember God's love, what we have to do is then preach to ourselves. We have to be able to say at some point, listen, self, you shut up and you listen to me. You're not a helpless victim of your emotions. You're in, you have a will. You have a volition. You have, and you know, not to mention, you have the Spirit of God in you. And if you question whether that's true, and that's a fair question, if that's how we feel, all I would say is God is offering us to step into that truth today, right now. He's always open to that. Now, I'll just close with this. I don't know how the psalmist got himself to preach to his own heart. I don't know. This is, I, mean, I don't know. Right? It's, not, it's not recorded here. But uh, we have a resource that he didn't have. Right? Way to preach to our hearts with vividness and effectiveness that he didn't have. When we feel empty, when we feel like, ah, oh, I think God has finally just given up on me. You know, if we feel ever like I'm, I'm a failure or I'm inadequate or I'm broken, you know, here's what God has for us. He says, remember the one who really said, I thirst. You know, remember the one who really said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember the one who really said, my enemies are mocking me and they're saying to me, where is your God? Jesus on the cross did not lose the feeling of the presence of God. He lost the presence of God. He didn't just feel forsaken. He really was forsaken. And the reason that Jesus did that is so that when we feel forsaken, we know that we're not alone. We know that he knows. That's what the cross represents to us. Even when you're in that deep, deep hole. Right? Even when you, when, when, when you feel like you're, you're dug so deep, it's like, well, wh what do I do? Like, how do I get out of here? What, how can I get back to the surface? What we must know is Jesus is not standing at the surface, shouting at us, looking down. He's underneath us, pushing us up, bidding us to rise from the grave as he did. And to know that his closeness and his presence and the satisfaction of our thirst that we find in him will be even deeper and richer than before. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much. We thank you for what you've done on the cross. We thank you that whatever situation, whatever condition of heart we find ourselves in, God, you are there for us. God, when we, you know, when we stand on the mountaintop and we look out and we are overwhelmed by all the blessings of our lives, God, you are there with us and you deepen our joy. You rejoice with us. And when we're in the hole, God, when we feel like we're lost and alone, when we feel like You know, no one understands what we're going through when we feel like the well has run dry. You're there with us, God.
you know our hearts. You know what we're going through. And you want to comfort us. And you want to remind us, God, of your loving kindness and of the great demonstration of love that you've given us in the cross and the resurrection, God. Help us to remember that. Help us, God, to preach to ourselves that truth. Empower us by your spirit and let us give, really, that gift of grace even to one another. We thank you and we entrust it to you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.